Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening for our discussion on religious liberty. I'm delighted to welcome our guests, who have been two courageous advocates for the cause of religious liberty, Ed Whalen, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and Ryan Anderson, William E. C Simon, senior research fellow in American principles and public policy at the Heritage Foundation. Please help me to welcome our speakers this evening. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. We're gonna, um, is this on? Perfect. Okay, um, we're gonna try to um, leave as much time as possible for audience Q&A and for uh, kind of um, discussion as possible. Um, but the general uh, theme of this was, you know, what happened in Indiana two weeks ago and what does that mean for the future of religious liberty in America? Uh, and actually, I think the best insight into what happened in Indiana two weeks ago was in yesterday's New York Times. Um, the court reporter for the New York Times, Adam Liptak, had a story about how, if you look at the Supreme Court right now, they're going to hear oral arguments in the marriage cases later this month. He said, you know, there are roughly the same number of amicus briefs filed on both sides of that question, but not a single top 100 law firm had filed an amicus brief defending the constitutionality of male-female state marriage laws, and that all of the big law firms were firmly on the side of uh, redefining marriage, and that the Constitution requires states to redefine marriage. And then he says at one point that he spoke to dozens of uh, law partners and law professors, and they said that they couldn't defend uh, these state marriage laws because doing so would be like defending racist bigotry. Um, and I just think that that was very, it was nice to see the New York Times uh, saying that because this is something that the left has more or less been saying for a decade now, that anyone who believes marriage is the exclusive union of husband and wife is today's equivalent of the racist bigots who were against interracial marriage 50 years ago. And what we've seen in a series of cases over the past decade uh, that involve Catholic charity adoption agencies and religious schools and photographers and florists and bakers is that time and again, uh, people who simply ask to be left alone from the government to lead their charities or their schools or their businesses in accordance with that belief that marriage is the union of a man and a woman have been penalized and harassed and otherwise coerced by the government. Um, and the reason why is very simple. There are some activists who believe that those people should be treated the same way that the law treats racists. Um, and I think what we saw in Indiana uh, was more or less that um, come to the fore. Religious liberty only became controversial within the past year or so um, because religious liberty protections, in particular the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, protected the Hahn family and the Green family in the Hobby Lobby case involving the Obamacare HHS mandate. And they stood the potential to protect the baker, the florist, and the photographer. Um, and there are some voices on the left who think that those people don't deserve protection. Um, that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood should be forced to pay for abortion-causing drugs and devices. Uh, that Little Sisters of the Poor should be forced to do this. And that the baker, the photographer, and the florist should be forced to bake the gay wedding cake or take the pictures at the same-sex wedding ceremony. Uh, so Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act is virtually identical um, to the uh, protections at the federal level uh, that Chuck Schumer sponsored in federal RIFRA, passed unanimously in the House. Ted Kennedy was the sponsor in the Senate, and it passed with 97 votes in the Senate. And then Bill Clinton signed this bill into law 22 years ago. And we've lived with this legal standard for 22 years without any of the horror stories that were told in the media a few weeks ago ever coming to fruition. Uh, because what RIFRA does is it establishes a balancing test. It says the government can only 
substantially burden the sincere exercise of religion if it does so for a compelling government purpose in the least restrictive way possible. So it doesn't say religious liberty always wins. It doesn't say religious liberty is a trump card. It says that if the government violates your religious liberty, you get a day in court where the, you get to show that the government substantially burdened your exercise of religion. And the government has to show that it was justified in doing so. The government has to show that it was doing so for compelling state interests in the least restrictive way possible. Um, that's been the standard for the federal government and the federal courts for 22 years. And there are 30 states uh, that have a similar either a, a statutory law, a, a state level referral, or their judges have interpreted their constitution to provide the same level of legal protection, including several of the states who governors were criticizing Governor Pence. Uh, so the governor of Connecticut announced that no government employee in the state of Connecticut could travel to Indiana for official government purposes, when Connecticut has the same exact Religious Freedom Restoration Act that Indiana uh, had passed and that Governor Pence had signed into law. Um, the only reason this became controversial within the past two years is because of the Hobby Lobby case and because some people have decided that the baker, the florist, the photographer, the Catholic charity adoption agencies don't deserve religious liberty protections because their view about marriage is tantamount to racism and we don't allow uh, racist bigots to have religious liberty exemptions. Um, so that's all really I wanted to say as kind of an opening uh, comment because I just think that's the cultural moment in which we find ourselves in today. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Ed, and then afterwards I'll say something about two bills in particular that focus on DC and religious liberty threats in DC, particularly DC religious schools. Um, but for now, that's, that's all I'll say. Well, let me begin by uh, adding to uh, Emily's praise of Ryan. He's really been incredibly courageous, remarkably prolific, uh, super voice out there. Many of you who follow him on Twitter to see the abuse he gets day in and day out, and he manages it with grace. He also, at the same time, is uh, Managing editor, editor of an online journal, Public Discourse, which uh, basically five days a week puts out high-quality essays on uh, topics that ought to be of interest to you. So if you're not subscribing to the free distribution yep. of uh, Public Discourse, I, I urge you to do so. Let me offer uh, a, a few reflections, and again, as Ryan said, I'm really eager to open this up um, for discussion. I actually don't, don't believe that most people on the other side uh, genuinely regard support for marriage, male, female mar marriage, we have to call it now, pretty soon we have to talk about round circles, uh, uh, you know, as, 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 as the equivalent of um, racial bigotry. I think we find it very useful to argue that. I think in part the, the effort to win this in the courts rather than legislatively invites and forces them to argue that way. But recall, the position that Ryan and I are defending is a position that Barack Obama purported to hold until the day before yesterday. Uh, you know, it's a position that's existed throughout Western civilization. I, I, I just do not, I do not believe that folks on the other side are genuinely so narrow-minded that they believe their own rhetoric. Nor do I believe that these leaders of law firms um, that Ryan mentioned uh, from the New York Times article hold those views. I think that they are caving to the pressure that they perceive. They're going the way um, that is, is the path of least resistance. Recall, these are the same law firms, the same law firms that won't defend marriage were, were eager to defend enemy combatants. <laughs> so I think that tells you something about um, where elite culture um, has been heading. The, uh, the bigger picture, I think, is uh, the 
dying out of good old-fashioned liberalism and its uh, replacement by a very aggressive progressivism. I want to talk a little bit about that because I think when we look at the logic of progressivism, we'll see that um, things are a lot scarier than, than, than you might think. <laughs> Indeed, if we look at, at how things have unfolded in recent decades, I think we see the logic of the collapse of a marriage culture playing itself out in a way that as hindsight looks somewhat predictable. You have this hollowed out uh, Judeo-Christian understanding of marriage that's largely been abandoned. You have um, the widespread acceptance of um, births out of wedlock, um, extramarital relations, uh, or non-marital relations certainly, uh, and um, the, the, the traditional understanding of what marriage is um, isn't retained by all that many people. So initially, I think you had people who still had the residual understanding that, of course, marriage is a union of a man and a woman. Um, but when they're pushed and bullied and pounded, they discover they don't have the resources to defend that. Now, on progressivism versus uh, classical or traditional liberalism, I think on tr traditional liberalism, uh, like conservatism, generally shared an understanding that there is this realm of civil society that operated as an important buffer of freedom between the state and the individual. And then we ought to encourage the institutions of civil society, churches, families, little leagues, Boy Scouts, local institutions to thrive. And that's where much of life was really lived and celebrated. And there's this there's wonderful plural, genuine plural, pluralism, uh, celebration of differences and understanding that people could, could you know, live their lives uh, in all sorts of ways um, you know, in that realm. And I think what you've seen instead is um, the progressive vision come to dominate, uh, a vision that believes that in the, in the name of diversity, everyone has to be the same, uh, a progressivism that is hostile to any institution that doesn't advance the progressive agenda. Oh, sure, they'll be, they'll be happy to work with uh, churches uh, insofar as those churches are on board with their aims, but any, any institution that isn't on board gets wiped out. I think in many ways the uh, terrible experience with the ad adoption, the Catholic Charity Adoption Agencies really highlight mm -hmm. um, the difference between progressivism and the old-fashioned liberalism. There were plenty of adoption providers in Massachusetts who served gay couples. The market, so to speak, was working to ensure that, that there was this diversity of providers, but that wasn't enough. No, every institution had to serve gay couples, and the people who insisted on that did not care, did not give a damn whether someone might be less willing to give up uh, a, a, a kid for adoption as a result because she wasn't comfortable that this kid might not be raised Catholic, for example, or she had greater confidence in, in, in Catholic charities. Um, likewise, you take the, you know, say the wedding photographer example. Who would want to have as a wedding photographer, someone who is hostile to the ceremony itself. No one wants that wedding photographer. Uh, and indeed, in a, in a functioning market, you'd be glad to have the information that this person isn't, of, 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 you know, isn't really interested in your ceremony. Um, but you know, when you talk about wedding photography, just like any other wedding service, you're talking about something that unlike classic public accommodations, unlike you know, when you need a place to stay or need a meal, involves search costs. No one thinks, I'm going to hire the first wedding photographer I run across. Uh, um, uh, so you expect to, to consult with the person, uh, involve them in, uh, in, your, in your ceremony, 
And in this particular case, I'm speaking of the Lane photography case in New Mexico, the photographer just volunteered up front that she wasn't willing to do this. The, 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 the couple for their commitment ceremony hired someone else, but they complained to this New Mexico Human Rights Commission. And these human rights commissions uh, you know, have nothing to do but, but go after people with, with a vengeance. And, uh, and it was this entity that, 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 that fined the photographer thousands of dollars. And the, the bottom line message is if you're not, you will not be permitted in the progressive view to operate your business unless you agree with them across the board. Again, I think a very different understanding than, 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 than the classical uh, liberal understanding. And what you see also is a very different view of what religious liberty is. I think uh, uh, traditionally liberals un understood that religious liberty was a good in and of itself, a way for those searching for meaning in their lives, searching for uh, how they should live their lives to, to explore um, uh, you know, who God is and what, what, what God uh, demands of them. And also that, that religion, by fostering all of these civil associations uh, in this civil society space that I mentioned, produced a lot of goods for society. Progressives don't believe the, the, the first part of that, that religion is, is in itself a good for individuals. They view it as some sort of you know, irrash, irrational you know, belief in fairyland, and they don't care whether it produces uh, good effects for society because they don't value the pluralism in this civil society space that I've been talking about. So what, what you're seeing is really a, a uh, shifting of the traditional line between public and private. Now this line has shifted before for some reasons, but basically the, 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 the classic understanding is that you have public actors like uh, governments that are obligated to deal with uh, everyone in a non-discriminatory way. And in the private realm, there are offsetting values of freedom of association that mean that there's, there ought to be some real burden on the government to justify any intrusion uh, on, on that personal liberty. But now the line has shifted, so it's no longer talking about public actors and private actors, but you're talking about uh, this privatization of religious liberty. That you have religious liberty when you're in your home or in your church, but when you're out living your life in the world, suddenly that's, that's deemed public, and you might as well be a public utility uh, for, for how the uh, progressives uh, view you. So um, I'll just add that, that the, the Obama administration has um, been very active in this war on religious liberty. We've seen it in Hobby Lobby, where somehow it was important to dragoon unwilling providers to be complicit in the provision of, of, of abortive patients. Again, it used to be that, you, that liberals would understand that you ought to be very wary of forcing people to violate their consciences. That's something very, very, very grave uh, to, 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 to require something like that. Now, progressives are eager to do that because it's a way of stomping out uh, religious belief. Uh, you had the Hosanna Tabor Supreme Court case from a few years ago where the Obama, the Obama administration took the amazing position, I mean, it stunned even uh, Justice Kagan, Kagan, that the religion clauses of the First Amendment said nothing about the ability of a church to select uh, who its religious leaders ought to be. Um, and you have likewise seen in the, in the international realm the Obama administration subordinating religious liberty to its LGBTQ XYZ um, uh, agenda. So what does this mean going forward? I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this, but when you look at the progressive goals, uh, the 
these, intermediate, these mediating institutions include not just churches, but schools and families. And the next targets um, are, are going to be, uh, well, churches, schools, and families. Denial of tax-exempt status for uh, folks who won't go along, uh, coercing um, everyone to teach the prescribed curriculum, the prescribed view uh, of uh, the progressive view of, of, of sexuality, for example. Uh, you're going to see, I think, um, all sorts of uh, institutions that, that face the threat of going out of business. And I think it's not too long before you're going to see uh, the, the risk of parents losing their kids for engaging in child abuse by raising their kids in the faith. We've seen this already in Canada, I believe, in some places in Europe. And I will say um, to anyone who thinks, oh, that won't happen anytime soon, look back and see how quickly things have collapsed over the last 10 or 20 years. And if you have any assurance it won't happen anytime soon, I, th I think you're fooling yourself. So with that, um, hand it back to Ryan for some more comments. Especially Ryan, I'm eager to hear. I'm eager to hear comments on what we ought to be doing now, legislatively, to, yeah. to protect ourselves. Um, so let me say just two things uh, in response to what Ed just said. Uh, his last point uh, has already happened in England. Uh, it's the John family. Um, you can you know look this up on the internet. The John family were foster families um, somewhere in Great Britain. Um, they were taking in children. Um, they had stopped that for a while. They then reapplied to be a foster family. And they were told that they couldn't uh, because they were evangelicals and that their belief about marriage and chastity would be an uh, uh, inhospitable uh, household should their child turn out to be gay. Um, so they were no longer allowed to be adoptive uh, parents or foster parents because of their belief about the nature of human sexuality. Um, so that's not quite the same as the state actually taking away your children, but it's probably one step removed. Um, if you're not eligible to be a foster family or to be an adoptive parent, why would you be allowed to actually raise your biological children? If it's an inhospitable household for the one, why is it inhospitable for the other? Um, so just to say that, you know, I think Ed is exactly right to say that's the logic of where this is going. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight is I think Ed very uh, helpfully uh, highlighted three kind of historical changes that when they're put in combination explains our cultural moment. And that's a change in our form of government from classical liberalism to progressivism. Um, if the founders were alive today, before they objected to the religious liberty problems, they would say, what authorized the federal government to issue an Obamacare HHS mandate in the first place? Um, that if you look at what, the, what, what Madison and Jefferson set up when they established the federal government, they would say that we never empowered Congress to delegate to a bureaucracy known as the Department of Health and Human Services the ability to force every business in the United States to issue a certain type of health insurance. Um, and that the reason that we now have these religious liberty problems is that government's regulating too much. Government's in, in issuing a mandate that says you have to provide certain uh, drugs and benefits as part of your employee compensation, or in regulating a photographer and a baker and a florist, that this is a change of, in, in the nature of government. Um, second change would be in the nature and understanding of religious liberty. We frequently see the Obama administration redefining religious liberty as freedom to worship and freedom of worship. Uh, that what takes place inside of this chapel, that's what religious freedom is meant to protect. But what goes on outside in the marketplace, in Main Street, uh, in the public square, that's not what religious liberty is meant to protect. And so it, it further um, bifurcates your life between religious, meaning what you do at prayer before the tabernacle in the chapel, and then what you do in the rest of society is non-religious. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, that I think Ed helpfully highlighted is that the change of um, sexual culture, sexual mores, marriage in general, 
um, in that chastity is no longer seen as a virtue. And what chastity requires, understood as marriage being the union of a man and a woman and sexual relations being reserved for marriage so understood, um, is being viewed as uh, somewhat inhumane and backward and uh, uh, a form of repression. Uh, what's wrong with you that you are repressing yourself to live in accordance with that weird belief? When you put those three things together, it's not surprising that the religious liberty objections that we see in the United States right now have all centered on what Father Newhouse used to call the pelvic issues. Um, whether it's contraception or abortion or same-sex marriage, no one objects to the Muslim inmate growing a beard in prison. In fact, that Supreme Court case was unanimous. It was a nine to nothing win just earlier this year uh, uh, for, for the prisoner. Um, we don't have that sort of consensus when it comes to uh, the pelvic issues. And I think that it's those three factors that Ed highlighted. All right, what can be done? Um, let me start by mentioning right here in DC, um, just before Christmas, the DC City Council passed two uh, very problematic bills if you're a uh, Orthodox religious believer. Uh, one was euphemistically titled the Reproductive Health Non-Discrimination Act, and it said that all uh, employers in the District of Columbia had to make all employment decisions, both in terms of hiring, firing, and compensation, irrespective of uh, reproductive health choices, um, which has been interpreted in other jurisdictions to mean that you would have to both um, hire and fire irrespective of whether your employee is an abortion advocate, even if you're a pro-life group. Uh, so Americans United for Life uh, can't hire based upon its mission as a pro-life organization. And two, your compensation can't discriminate on the basis of reproductive health. So you would have to cover the full array of reproductive uh, health care, uh, euphemistically meaning you would have to cover abortion. So that was the Reproductive Health Non-Discrimination Act. Um, then there was the D.C. Human Rights Amendment Act of 2014. This was passed unanimously by the D.C. City Council, and all it did was rescind the Armstrong Amendment. Uh, the Armstrong Amendment, named after Senator Armstrong, Bill Armstrong, was passed uh, in the late eight, no, in the mid-80s, so it's uh, been around for over 25 years. It was a response to a bad D.C. court ruling um, that said that religious schools would have to have uh, LGBT groups on campus. And this was an amendment that Congress passed to protect religious liberty for DC's religious schools so that they wouldn't have to violate their beliefs about human sexuality. Uh, the DC City Council unanimously voted to rescind that religious liberty protection. The new mayor, um, she came into office in early January and in mid-January she signed both of these bills. The way that DC works is that it's a creation of Congress. Um, in our constitution, all legislative authority over the District of Columbia is given to Congress. Congress then delegated some of that authority when it created a DC City Council and it created the mayor's office. Uh, that's called the Home Rule Act, uh, uh, 1973. And under the Home Rule Act, Congress has a, a 30 legislative day window um, to review any legislation that the DC City Council passes. So just before the uh, Easter recess, Senator Lankford and Senator Cruz introduced disapproval resolutions in the Senate uh, that would effectively veto these two bills um, and it looks like uh, disapproval resolutions will be introduced in the House later this week. Uh, it would have to pass both chambers of Congress and receive President Obama's signature to effectively overturn these uh, bills. Um, it doesn't seem likely that President Obama will be signing these into law. It's still important uh, for Congress to do this because it sets um, the precedent that they are on record being opposed to what the DC City Council is doing. It's violating the religious liberty rights of DC residents and 
DC residents deserve to have their uh, religious liberty rights protected in law, uh, can help set up a better situation for when these cases eventually are litigated in courts. Uh, it can also set up a platform for larger uh, legislation. And there are two pieces of federal legislation that would handle these situations writ law large for the entire federal government. Um, one is the Abortion Non-Discrimination Act, uh, which says that, um, and also the, uh, the, the Abortion, uh, what's, um, it's a non-funding act, I forget the acronym. But so there are two different pieces of legislation. One would say that the federal government can't take any punitive actions against someone who um, believes in the sanctity of life, and it gives that pro-life person a cause of action, a way to actually seek remedy in courts. Uh, the problem right now with the Weldon Amendment, which prohibits uh, the government from violating a pro-lifer's conscience, is that it doesn't provide a uh, recourse in court to actually prevent the government from doing this. Uh, uh, this piece of legislation would uh, fix that. Um, then there's the Marriage and Religious Freedom Act. Uh, it's sponsored uh, last Congress by Representative Labrador and Senator Mike Lee. Uh, they haven't introduced it yet this Congress, um, but they're working on reintroducing it. Uh, this would say that the federal government can't uh, discriminate against anyone, uh, whether it's in their tax status, whether it's in accreditation, whether it's in government loans, grants, or contracts, based on their belief that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Uh, what we saw in the interracial marriage case is that the IRS stripped the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because Bob Jones was preventing interracial dating on campus. Um, we've heard people uh, argue whether or not they truly believe this or not, um, they're arguing that those schools who uh, treat marriage as the union of a man and a woman should also lose their tax-exempt status. And those charities, those bookstores that view marriage as the union of a man and a woman should lose uh, their tax-exempt status. Um, we see Gordon College right now is under investigation by the accrediting agency for New England colleges. Uh, Gordon is an evangelical school outside of Boston. Gordon has a, a campus conduct code that says all members of the Gordon community uh, faculty, staff, and students are expected to live by the Christian virtue of chastity. So they ask all of their community members to uh, uh, reserve sex for marriage, understood as the union of a man and a woman. When the president of Gordon College uh, signed a letter, it was a private letter that then was leaked and made public, but when he signed a letter to President Obama saying, if you issue one of these sexual orientation, non-discrimination uh, executive orders, please include a religious liberty exemption for religious schools. Uh, because it's very hard to run a religious school without receiving government money. How many of you used a government-subsidized student loan when you attended college? How many of your science labs are funded with federal science research money? There are only like, three schools that I know of in the entire United States that operate without government money. It's uh, Hillsdale, Grove City, and I always forget the third one. Um, all of the other accredited... Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry. All of the other colleges and universities in the United States receive government money. Um, and he was just saying, look, if you're going to attach one of these SOGI laws, sexual orientation and gender identity, please include a religious liberty exemption. When the accrediting agency found out that he had signed on to that letter, they were like, well, why would he need a religious liberty exemption? What is he doing? They found out that Gordon College had this uh, code. It didn't single out gay and lesbian students. It said all students were expected to live by chastity. Um, so heterosexual students, no sex outside of marriage either. Married people, no sex outside of marriage, no adultery. They said this was discrimination based on sexual orientation. Uh, Gordon initiated a one-year review process, and just last month, they announced that they weren't changing their policy. The ball is back in the court of the accrediting agency. Um, who knows what will happen next? But you know, I think Ed, where, where he uh, closed his comments of like this stuff is what's coming, is exactly right. 
And so these two pieces of federal law would, at least at the federal level, prevent the federal government from engaging this action. Uh, there's, a federal, there's a law that says the federal government can't revoke your tax-exempt status. It can't change your accreditation. It can't say you're not eligible for a, a government grant or contract. Um, it would prevent that at the federal level. This is important because we saw two or three years ago, Catholic Charities was running a human trafficking program. It was the best human trafficking program on the internal audit. Uh, each year, uh, they were required by law to actually do an evaluation of the people who received a government uh, grant to do this work, government contract to do this work. The Catholic Charities anti-human trafficking program was the most effective. Uh, but they wouldn't refer women for abortions. And so the activists said they should no longer be eligible for the government uh, program. And that was one of the first things that the Obama administration did, was that they canceled uh, the Catholic Charity participation in that program, even though they were the, based upon the peer-reviewed uh, uh, process, the most effective. Uh, states can do similar things. Um, there are two ways of doing this. You can have a state RIFRA, which is what Indiana was trying to do two weeks ago, which establishes the balancing test between compelling state interests being pursued in the least restrictive ways possible and uh, burdens on religious exercise. You can also do a state version of a MARFA. Um, that's what Louisiana is doing right now. And it just says that the state government in Louisiana won't in any way uh, discriminate against an individual or an institution because they believe marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Um, all this does is keep the status quo that we've had throughout the entire history of the United States. Um, that if you believe marriage is a male-female union, you're a full and equal member of society. You're eligible for the same tax treatment, for the same accreditation, provided your school actually educates, eligible for the same grants and contracts and student loans. Um, so I think I'll stop there, turn it back over. And well, let me briefly address the question of, of state legislation. Um, first, I should say, those of you who are standing in the back, plenty of seats up here, so come on in if you'd like. Um, as, as Ryan said, there are two basic approaches that states can take. Uh, they can adopt, those, those that haven't, the 20 or so that haven't could adopt RIFRA laws, or, they could, or the states could adopt clear, specific, targeted protections. I strongly believe that the latter way is the much better way to go. I think you can do both. It's not an either or. Um, but as we've seen with the experience in Indiana and Arkansas, as we saw last year in Arizona, in, uh, in Kansas, these RIFRA laws get demagogued like crazy. Even if enacted, they provide very limited, uncertain protection. Um, they're, not, they're not worth much. I mean, it, it's, it's a decent baseline default guarantee of religious liberty, but it doesn't assure anyone that they're going to be able to proceed in the way they would like. So sure, if you're ready to incur uh, you know, years of litigation and, and, and tens of thousands of dollars of potential liability for the you know, chance that maybe it'll win down the road, but then maybe RIFRA's worth something to you. Uh, but no, let's get these targeted protections where we can make the case, where we can say, you know, your parade of horribles doesn't work at all here. This is exactly what this says. Um, so I, I, would, I, I really think the approach has to go that way. RIFRAs have their role. It's a very minor one. Uh, you know, the, 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 the you know, irony of this whole Indiana law is it would not have accomplished much at all anyway. Uh, so, so I'll leave it at that and maybe we can... Yeah, we can open it up to the floor. I'll, I'll just say that Ed's exactly right because Arizona had a RIFRA and the court system said that it couldn't be used to defend Elaine Photography. That because Elaine New was in... New Mexico. New Mexico because, because Elaine was in business, religious liberty didn't apply to her. Um, so RIFRA was useless in New Mexico for Elaine. Floor is open. Yep. Uh, 
a shout out. You don't take government money. We do not. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Anyway, um, uh, you mentioned the Connecticut example and kind of the hypocrisy there. Uh, but one thing, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that Connecticut does have a law in the books protecting uh, gay rights, which is something they were quick to point out. Um, not all states have those, but do you do you foresee a proliferation of gay rights laws now that people, I mean, all, honestly, a lot of people didn't even realize that was a thing that could happen. And right. so now that it's been brought to the attention by RIFRA debate, do you see that uh, spreading? Um, sure. So let me say two things. One, like, a, a debate about a religious freedom uh, bill um, is irrespective of whether or not you also have a sexual orientation and gender identity protections. Um, so I believe you're right that Connecticut has both, uh, although I would need to double check on the SOGI part. Um, but the Religious Freedom Restoration Act doesn't impact uh, whether or not SOGI is a good or a bad idea one way or the other. Um, so I still think it's a little hypocritical for the governor of Connecticut to say because the citizens of Indiana wanted to protect religious liberty um, and they passed the same exact bill uh, that his citizens have been living under for about 16 years, that that somehow makes them anti-gay. Um, I think, yes, you will see a proliferation of attempts to add sexual orientation and gender identity to the protected uh, classes. Um, the Human Rights Campaign has announced that that's their number one goal for 2015. Uh, they released a document back at the end of December titled Beyond Marriage Equality. Uh, they were taking it as a given that Justice Kennedy was going to give them marriage equality in all 50 states uh, this June and that their big legislative push was for a federal law that would add sexual orientation and gender identity to all federal uh, anti-discrimination statutes. Um, so wherever you have a federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, they would insert sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, I have made various arguments as to why this is bad public policy. Um, most recently, uh, two, th uh, three or four weeks ago now, um, I testified before the US Commission on Civil Rights uh, as to why this is bad policy. We then published it at Public Discourse. So you can do a Google search. I think the title was something along the lines of why sexual orientation and gender identity are not like race, um, and why they therefore shouldn't have the same uh, legal protections that are afforded on the basis of race. And I'll just highlight three. There's a definitional problem, there's a conceptual problem, and there's a historical problem. Uh, the definitional problem is that sexual orientation and gender identity has no uh, uh, uniformly agreed to definition. And it seems actually impossible to give it such a definition. Um, you know, Ed made the joke earlier about X, Y, and Z, LGBTQQIA, X, Y, Z. Uh, Wellesleyan College has about, I think it's uh, 14, 15 letters that are in their acronym. Uh, includes things like polyamory, uh, sadomasochism, uh, something called genderfuck. I don't know what that is, but it's an additional G was in there. Um, and then, you know, I, I, this is in the testimony that I gave is that what is the principled point? What counts as a sexual orientation and a gender identity? Um, and why? And how do you actually define it? What is the scientific basis of this? This is unlike race, because the entire point of race was that all races should be protected. You should never uh, consider someone's race uh, relevant when it comes to public accommodations or employment. Um, which leads to the second point, conceptual point. Why should you never consider any aspect of race relevant? Because conceptually, race is utterly irrelevant um, to your character, to your actions. When Martin Luther King Jr. said that he had a dream that his children would be judged by the content of their character, not the color of his skin, he was articulating a very important moral principle that runs from Aristotle through Kant, through the entire Western tradition, that we should be judged based upon our actions. 
And skin color, race is utterly irrelevant to our actions. If I tell you someone's white, black, Hispanic, Asian, it tells you nothing about the actions they engage in. It tells you nothing about the content of their character. Which is why, in all situations, under every plausible definition of race, it would be wrong to discriminate on the basis of race. Sexual orientation and gender identity, whatever else they mean, are simply uh, uh, shorthands for certain types of actions. Uh, where gay and describes a man who engages in sex acts with other men, lesbian, a woman who engages in sex acts with other women, a bisexual, a man or a woman who engages in sex acts with both men and women, transgender, a biological male who identifies as female, biological female who identifies as male, polyamory, people who engage in group sex acts, um, I, what else, sadomasochism, people who engage That's in, no. I, I mean, so like, <laughs> you can keep going down the list. And the point here is, whatever your evaluation of those acts are, or my evaluation of those acts, they're at least the subject matter that is legitimate for evaluation, because they're actions. They actually do speak to the content of someone's character. And it's legitimate for Hillsdale College, for example, or DC Catholic schools, or this bookstore, to make a judgment that certain human actions are in accord with the moral truth about human nature and the natural law and revelation, and that other actions aren't. Um, and that what we've seen is that when these sexual orientation and gender identity laws have been added to the anti-discrimination clause, that's been the law that has been used to shut down the Catholic adoption agencies, or to coerce the evangelical photographer, or the 70-year-old grandmother florist in Washington state. Um, so they're, it's, it's, they're, they're much overly broad, because they define the belief that we're created male and female, and that male and female are created for each other, as if it's discrimination akin to racism. So that's the conceptual point. The last point I'll point out is a historical point. 50 years ago, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, African Americans were, relatively speaking, politically powerless. Uh, Jim Crow had only recently been uh, struck down. Uh, and the Civil Rights Act was part of what actually struck it down. So the laws were actually forcibly segregating people based upon race. Where if you were black, you had to sit at the back of the bus. You had to drink out of a certain water fountain. You couldn't sit at the lunch counter. Um, today, it's something like 88% of all Fortune 500 companies have voluntarily adopted uh, non-discrimination clauses on the basis of sexual orientation. All of the big law firms are defending uh, uh, what they call marriage equality. None of them are defending traditional marriage. The President of the United States and the entire Democratic Party are in support of uh, LGBT rights. There simply isn't the need, uh, there's not the justification for the federal government to intervene in what Ed rightly pointed out is what classical liberalism would have said, leave that for civil society and market transactions. Um, free markets, free contracts, freedom of association will solve most of these issues. If you want to run a wedding photography business that doesn't do same-sex marriages great, the majority of wedding photographers will probably choose to do same-sex weddings. Why do we need a law that says every wedding photographer has to do this? This is unlike the situation 50 years ago in the South um, in which you actually would have uh, uh, public accommodations in the true sense, hotels, uh, buses, ferries, bridges, hospitals that were run by racists that might not serve African Americans. And so the justification historically for the government coming in and saying we have to stop that in each and every place especially given the history of government-imposed slavery and government-imposed segregation under Jim Crow, was much more uh, necessary than what we see today. Um, you know, as I'd point out in the adoption context, there were other adoption agencies more than willing to do the same-sex adoption 
So why did the law have to say that the Catholic adoption agency would have to do this? Um, so that's my kind of uh, short summary of, of a definitional, a conceptual, and a historical reason why sexual orientation and gender identity should not be equated with race and should not be um, uh, protected with the same sorts of anti-discrimination laws. I don't know if you want to add. But yeah, let me, let me offer uh, a cluster of additional thoughts. As, as someone who once worked on Capitol Hill, I find it amazing that uh, members of Congress would be ready to impose on Americans a uh, gender identity rule that they would never apply themselves. I mean, you're not going to be finding uh, transgendered individuals as, as receptionists uh, you know, on the Hill. Again, I, I agree with Ryan's basic point, which is um, the diversity of the market has, uh, uh, in the case of sexual orientation discrimination, I think uh, performed admirably to make it so that there is not an issue here that needs to be addressed. We need to be aware of the costs of regulation. We have this think this thought now that if there's if if, if anyone might make a decision we don't like, we've got to regulate against it. Uh, in in Michigan, it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of height or weight. And what that means now. Uh, and there's a so-called bona fide occupational qualification exception that any of you who are labor lawyers will recognize, which is, okay, if you run a basketball team, you can maybe discriminate based on height. Uh, but, but you now have Michigan bureaucrats who are trying to decide how fat is too fat for a stripper. What is the occupational qualification? Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I'm confident that the market can work that out. Uh, uh, so... You know, I think what, what we saw um, with the 64th Civil Rights Act, as Ryan said, was a need to shatter the racist regime of segregation that artificially interfered with decisions that, 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 that people would have made and also propped up, propped up racists. That's the point at which I think uh, classical liberalism started to diverge from progressivism because many people then started applying the, the template of the 64th Civil Rights Act to everything irrespective of any serious consideration of whether its consequences would be good even for the beneficiaries. Um, the, the last point I'll make here um, is that insofar as states are looking to um, adopt SOGI laws or SO laws, uh, this arguably provides an opportunity to couple that with um, extensive religious liberty protections of the type that Ryan was talking about. I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the details of the so-called grand bargain that happened recently in Utah. Um, and you know, I don't know whether it provides a model going forward or not. But um, this particular context you know, is one in which there is at least the potential uh, for sorting out, OK, um, let's address long-term questions of tax-exempt status, of accreditation, other things uh, right now while we're, while we're addressing this. Now, let me, one, one final point is that there are also some uh, um, very small number, but of very intelligent, fair-minded gay libertarians mm -hmm. who um, I hope are heard from more on, on, on this. You had a question? Hi. I, uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to know your uh, opinion about or your take on um, so back in 1972, really three main things happened in America. We had Roe v. Wade that was passed. Uh, we had the 
uh, homosexuality was officially removed from the DSM mm. as a uh, as a mental disorder. And the big thing is we had kind of the reversal of or the implementation of no fault marriage how, or no fault divorce. How now you can get divorced basically because if the person dyes their hair, you can get a divorce basically. I uh, just wanted to know your opinion on how those three things may have started the, pro the, the, the situation that we're in now in 2015. Well, I certainly think uh, no-fault divorce, which was swept the country, again, without very little reflection, uh, is very much part of the collapse of our uh, marriage culture. I mean, mar uh, marriage, you talk about marriage as a contract, marriage is less than a contract. There's no other contract in which the defaulting party um, you know, can, can just walk away without any responsibility. So, um, so I, th I think that's uh, was an important part. Abortion, uh, Roe, uh, obviously was an outgrowth of uh, the sexual revolution of the 1960s, which um, also operated to uh, lower the costs of extramarital and premarital sex, except when you're killing babies. Um, lowered the cost for the adults. Instead. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I think that also, I mean, you, you look at uh, the, the trend line for divorce, um, I, I, you know, you'd see a, a significant rise in divorce then. I you remember I was, uh, you know, uh, young, a, a boy in 72, I remember suddenly people's friends were getting divorced, something that never happened before, and next thing you know, it's happening all over the place. Um, on yeah, on, on homosexuality and the declassification, I don't, I don't know um, what the immediate impact of that was, but it's all it's certainly all related, and you're right to to, to connect this all, uh, and it, it's um, you know part of the broader rejection of the traditional religious understanding of human sexuality, um, uh, its ends and its goods. I don't know. I, mean, I guess the the only thing I would add is that you know the 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 basic narrative that comes out of the 60s is that consenting adults should do whatever consenting adults want to do. And that once you buy into that mindset, um, what we've seen in the past 40 years makes total logical sense. Um, the only kind of exception to that would be no-fault divorce, because it's not even a consenting adult. Right? I mean, you're, you're, you're abandoning your spouse without your spouse's consent. No-fault divorce, some scholars will put the word unilateral in front of it, because it's unilateral no-fault divorce. You can divorce your spouse without your spouse's consent and without citing grounds for the divorce. And as Ed said, you know you have less of a legal obligation to your spouse than you do to more or less any other contract. Your plumber and your roofer, you have a greater legal obligation to than to your spouse. But with that one caveat, in general, um, the, the the outlook is that consenting adults should do what they want to do, provided there's no coercion, there's no deception, and they use protection. Um, if it feels good, do it. Was the you know, the catchphrase of, the, of that time. So, in the back. Talk a little wonky, forgive me. But Title VII actually does have an anti-discrimination anti for religious reasons, right? It does. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why is there not more sort of federal litigation that counterbalances some of the stuff? Why, why aren't people bringing federal suits based on the discrimination based on that? And also, why are there not laws that are sort of hate crime based when people are actually trying to nuke these businesses into the ground because I mean shouldn't there be some legislative efforts on the other end to as you know sort of hate crime level mm -hmm. stuff well let me start with the second one first I'm very leery of expanding the amorphous concept of, of hate crimes 
Uh, you're, you're right, of course, that the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964 includes among its prohibited bases of action religion, uh, which means, for example, that um, someone uh, seeking employment um, cannot be discriminated on, on the basis of religion. My guess is that happens a lot more <laughs> than discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in a lot of places. You look and say, oh, you went, hmm, this person went to Wheaton or uh, Hillsdale. Uh, we don't want folks like that around here. Um, it's uh, very difficult to prove, and I think most religious folks, not backed up by, you know, a massive cause-based organizations ready to, to sue at the drop of a hat, are ready to go on and find a job somewhere else. They're not as vindictive. So, so I, you know, insofar as there's any interest, and in, I don't, you know, I'm not suggesting the environment's ready for it, but any interest in re rethinking this whole. Um, metastasizing scheme of non-discrimination norms, I would encourage religious people to give up <laughs> the ban on religious discrimination. Uh, offer that up right away. It's not worth much to you. Um, it's probably not worth anything at all. And um, uh, again, most of the discrimination can be done in a way that it's, it's never detected. That side of the room? Or? Targeted protection as better than RFRA's. Now, this, I mean, I don't know, this targeted protection, you're talking about religious liberty or, or conscience protections written into SOGI laws? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, so um, not necessarily written into SOGI laws, but just it would be any uh, legislation that said either the federal or the state government will not in any way penalize or discriminate against someone because they believe and act on the belief that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. So if you're Hillsdale College, if you're an adoption agency, if you're a photography studio, and you want to run your school, your charity, or your business in accordance with the belief that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, the government can't do anything to penalize you for that. Um, and the nice thing about this is that it doesn't lead to the parade of horribles that the left uh, points out, because none of those people are saying that they can't serve a slice to a pizza to someone because they're gay or lesbian, or that they can't educate a student because they're gay or lesbian. They're just saying that they don't want to have you know, the gay pride group on campus, or they don't want to do the same-sex wedding. And so this would be nicely uh, targeted to that set of beliefs, the nature of marriage uh, and human sexuality. So it wouldn't lead to some of the absurd headlines that you saw two weeks ago in, in Indiana. And you look at what the threat is, and you address it specifically. So for example, universities withdrawing recognition from student groups that subscribe to traditional religious views of sexuality say they can't do that. Um, you know, uh, we've already spoke about tax exemption. We can talk about, um, you know, uh, you're going to see um, a, an effort to, I think, bar ministers who perform civil mar uh, marriages from continuing to do so if they refuse to marry same-sex couples. They'll still be the religious marriages, but say, look, you're functioning as the agent of the state. So if that's important um, to, to protect, I'm not sure, I'm not too sure how important that is, mm -hmm. but that's important to protect, spell it out. Yep. So you have, you have clarity. Uh, certainty, you avoid the parade of horribles, people can act in comfort knowing that their rights are, as opposed to these yep. RIFA laws which say nothing more than if government substantially burdens your exercise of religion, it has to, sh uh, and you challenge that in some context, it has to show that it, uh, that it did so to serve uh, a compelling interest and did so in the least restrictive means. What the heck does that mean? And an activist uh, judge will say that eliminating anti-gay bigotry is a compelling state interest and allowing no one to do it is the least restrictive way of achieving it. Yeah. So I mean, you, get, you, get, you, you end up in the wrong legal system, the wrong courtroom, 
and it's not going to help you anyway. This is very specific. It says, no, the government can't penalize you because of your belief and your action on behalf of that belief. Um, I want to follow up on that question, particularly the grounds of Kennedy's reasoning. He's going to say it's an irrational animus. And then that's going to be into the that's going to be constitutionalized, and that's going to be the public policy. And then you're going to be putting up state and federal statutes, and you're going to have a state statute that's conflicting with a constitutional right. How much how much protection are these really, particularly based on these reasoning, as opposed to a more if he just said, oh, it's equality. He's going be he's going well beyond that to say that I mean you are no different than racists. So I hope not. So I mean, I'm, I, I, I filed an amicus brief in this case, and a bunch of my friends have as well. And we're, we're, we're doing what we can to avoid that outcome. I spoke with an attorney today who thinks we have a 50-50 chance of winning this case. And I don't think he was drunk, because he's Mormon. He doesn't drink. Um, but he, I mean, he's, 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 he's serious about that. He thinks that, uh, you know, Ed, Ed's not, and most of the other attorneys who I've spoken to don't think that. Um, I think it matters, even if we lose, how we lose. And your question highlights that. Um, there are greater and lesser ways of losing. And so even the terms of your defeat matter, which is why I think it's important that we continue to fight this even if it looks like we're going to lose. Um, because if Kennedy ends up saying that it's not a protected class, it's not irrational animus, um, but it's just, you know, there's just no, no, no compelling enough reason to retain the man-woman definition of marriage. And so I'm mandating same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And he's ambiguous about it. The Windsor decision, the, the decision that struck down the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, is unclear exactly what the legal holding was. It was a combination of federalism and something known as equal dignity, which never actually appears anywhere in the Constitution. Um, and it struck down the federal law. Um, but he didn't go whole hog. He could have said that the Constitution requires same-sex marriage everywhere. He didn't. He had a chance to do that, but he didn't. Um, if we were to lose in June at the Supreme Court, and he um, wasn't to say that you know half of the country is irrational, animus-filled bigots, that would be better than if he does. And my sense is that he is swayed by public opinion. He's swayed by the uh, um, uh, current events. And that if he saw what was going on in Indiana, he might actually recoil from that. Uh, that he doesn't want the pizza shop that got boycotted and got death threats. And you know, they then put a GoFundMe campaign that put them back in business. But I don't think Kennedy at heart is an equal dignity libertarian type guy. And I think if he sees that he might unleash that sort of violation of liberty, on half of the country, he might be more restrained. But I'm going to let Ed, a former Supreme Court clerk, actually tell us the truth. Because I'm well, uh, well about the most thing. favorable thing I can say about uh, Justice Kennedy, um, uh, maybe his saving grace is that his opinions are largely unintelligible. <laughs> I mean, tell us what you really think. You, <laughs> you, you could, I could read Romer versus Evans for the rest of my life and have no idea what it means. He doesn't know what it means. He he exudes blather. Um, so I think it's likely he'll do that again. Uh, look, his blather in Windsor enabled, though it certainly did not compel, everything that followed. Um, you know, I think he knew that. Um, so I, yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with Ryan that he has, um, in his own muddled, incoherent way, some sort of um, you know, libertarian instinct that might have him recoiling about some of the things that he's seeing. Um, so I expect that whatever he writes won't be written in a way that 
seems clearly to foretell all these, striking down all these hypothetical laws we're talking about. Now that said, uh, you know, if a uh, Democrat is elected in 2016 uh, and has the opportunity to replace even Justice Kennedy, the court will swing um, dramatically to the left and things will be very, very bad. There they are, but even worse. Justice Scalia is in his early 80s right now? Justice Scalia is uh, 82, yes. So if someone oh, was... Sorry. No, he's... Uh, I'm doing the math wrong. I'm sorry. He's, he was born in 36, so he's, he's, uh, he's uh, 79. Pardon me. So he would be 85 when the next election were to take place if we lose this election. Pray for his health. <laughs> yep. Well, back there. Uh, Dr. Anderson, uh, your book, What is Marriage?, makes a case for traditional marriage based on reason. You don't appeal to revelation or religious principles. Um, but here, obviously, it seems that our strategy is to kind of use religious freedom as our protection legally. Uh, that, that, that also has been the case with HHS mandate. Um, my question is, are we sure we want to do that? Uh, may we be isolating ourselves further? And what might be the long-term consequences of making a religious argument rather than really trying to yeah. be very clear this is a thing of natural law or reason? Yeah, great, great question. So, I mean, I think we have to do both. Um, and so I don't want to suggest that this is an irrational religious belief that I have that I want to be protected. I think it's the truth that I want to not see the government penalized. Um, and so the more targeted protections don't actually mention religious liberty. They just say this belief can't be discriminated against by the government. So anyone, the, the secular humanist who just really understands reason and believes the truth about marriage, they would be protected under the more targeted bill, the Marriage and Religious Freedom Act. Um, that Labrador and Lee introduced last time and we'll introduce again later this year, um, that would protect any American from federal government discriminating against them because they believe marriage is the union of a man and a woman. So that has the benefit of not saying it's just some idiosyncratic religious belief. Um, that said, there is good um, case law and jurisprudence and uh, protections on the book that spell out religion for special protections, and we should, make, we should take advantage of those when we can. Um, Hobby Lobby, the Green Family, got relief from the HHS mandate because of federal RIFRA. Uh, and it's not clear if the lawyers could have won that case on any other grounds. They might have, but it's not clear that they would have. And it's more important, um, I think, that, uh, that they won that case than that we made a philosophically pristine argument for why um, the natural law is also against uh, uh, paying for abortion causing drugs and devices and then losing the case. Um, so this is where Hadley Arcus and I kind of disagree, and we've had this debate in print at, at public discourse. Um, which is just to say, I think no matter what the Supreme Court does in June, um, uh, Americans need to, to make a series of arguments. One is that our belief about marriage is true. Not just our religious truth, our private truth, but that this is the truth about marriage. In the same way that the pro-life movement after Roe v. Wade didn't just say, well, we have this idiosyncratic view that says we can't kill a fetus, a clump of cells. No, they said the unborn child in the womb is a human being with equal rights and dignity and we shouldn't be coerced into killing it because it's wrong, period. Not because of my religion says so. That was the argument. So they kept making the case about the sanctity of life uh, as the truth. We should do the same about marriage. 
They then won religious liberty protections. They won conscience protections in general. So the Weldon Amendment and the Church Amendment protect both conscience and religious liberty. So it says any pro-life citizen should not be coerced by the government into performing an abortion or paying for an abortion. We should do the same on marriage. No pro-marriage citizen should be coerced by the government into helping to celebrate a same-sex wedding or into otherwise violating their beliefs about marriage. And then the last thing that the pro-life movement did was that they embodied this set of beliefs through a host of institutions and organizations. People like the Feminists for Life and Silent No More and most recently Helen Alvarez's group, Women Speak for Themselves, crisis pregnancy centers, all sorts of kind of uh, grassroots organizations that embody the culture of life. Uh, the same thing will have to happen on the marriage side. Uh, we need better pre-Cana programs. Uh, we need better ministries to people with same-sex attractions, what Courage is doing and the Desires of Everlasting Hills, a wonderful video they've made. All of those things need to be duplicated and replicated to like the nth degree. Um, and so it'll have to be all three. Like, you have to defend your viewpoint as true. You have to protect it in law, whether it's conscience protections or religious liberty protections. And then you have to live it out. Uh, and I think one of the problems, as Ed highlighted in his opening remarks, is that this debate about uh, the redefinition of marriage and then the ensuing religious liberty violations take place after a 50-year collapse of the family. It takes place 50 years after the sexual revolution. And it's only in such a context could it even be plausible that the Supreme Court of the United States would say that uh, the viewpoint that marriage is the union of a man and a woman is irrational and just the result of animus. Only in this historical moment could someone even uh, uh, entertain that thought. Um, and the problem is that uh, you know, our communities haven't done a great job living out the truth about marriage. And so we'll have to think about how do we catechize the next generation of, of believers to believe and live out the truth about marriage, especially when they're going to be brainwashed and indoctrinated by the government-run public schools. So there'll be a lot of work to do. And you know, Ed is a parent, so he should chime in. Well, just very briefly on that, uh, the last point, I, I think that there's, there seems to be this disproportion between um, folks who speak out against homosexuality and the folks who speak out against heterosexual fornication. Right. Uh, and, I th and I think you know, uh, gays have good reason to, to think there's uh, something very unfair going on there. So um, yeah, if you're going to stand for uh, the um, Judeo-Christian understanding of what marriage is, you better stand for it in its entirety and not just in part, or you're not going to be able to defend it. We have time for one more question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> With uh, all of the new briefs coming out from adult children of same-sex couples and the narrative they bring to the table, do you think that that is um, the most effective way that we can rally around uh, traditional marriage? I don't know if it's the most effective way, but it's a particularly uh, effective way. And so. Um, tomorrow at Public Discourse, we have a piece from one of the um, children of uh, a lesbian couple. Uh, she wrote a piece for us back in February. It was titled, Dear Justice Kennedy, um, an open letter from a child of a loving gay couple, don't redefine marriage, something to that effect. And it got you know, over 100 uh, uh, social media shares, and it got over a, a million page views within like two weeks, which is much more than public discourse essays normally receive. These are 2,000 word long like philosophical essays. Um, but it touched people, and it resonated, and, and tomorrow she kind of has like a follow-up based upon the amicus brief she filed. Um, I would say you know, to highlight three amicus briefs that I, I think everyone in this room should read, because they're accessible to non-lawyers. Uh, one is by, uh, it's submitted by over 100 marriage scholars, uh, and it was submitted by Jean Scher, she's the lawyer, 
and it's just titled like the marriage brief of marriage, uh, the amicus brief of marriage scholars, something like that. And Gene Share is the name you would uh, Google search. And it well, makes, well, his name is spelled in a very funny way. Yeah, S C H A E R R, Share. And he just makes an argument that redefining marriage impacts the children of heterosexuals as well because it changes the institutional understanding of what marriage is. And that if you redefine marriage, you redefine it for everyone. And in the same way in which creating no-fault divorce changed marriage for everyone, divorce rates more than doubled in the two decades after the introduction of no-fault divorce, eliminating gender complementarity for marriage will impact the behavior of everyone, not just the children of same-sex couples. And he runs through a series of arguments. And then he has some uh, data that looks at the countries and the states that have redefined marriage. And he sees that both the divorce rates have increased and the marriage rate has dropped by at least 5% in every one of the states and countries that has redefined marriage. He says that it changes the public understanding of the importance of marriage and the importance of males and females raising children together. Because it makes marriage more about consenting adult love than about a family structure that can create and then raise the next generation. If I could just interrupt before you turn to the other two amicus briefs. Anytime you, you know, it, it, the, the whole approach that the um, gays and lesbians have taken uh, to marriage is to say that the connection between marriage and procreation and child rearing is irrational. Well, if you take an institution's core mission and you redefine the institution away from that mission, of course it's not going to perform that mission as well. And it sounds as though, you know, Gene is spelling this out quite yes. a bit. So you, you hear, you, you know, you, you hear often, I'll, I'll say, well, well, are, are heterosexuals going to marry less because gays can marry? Well, you know, there are lots of guys out there who look for any excuse not to marry. And yes, um, when you separate, when, when you, know, you, you continue to, to um, just destroy the concept that kids should be born in wedlock, you dem demote that, of course you're going to have less marriage. Yep. And so Gene and the 100 marriage scholars spell this out conceptually. They make a theoretical argument about why this would happen. They have five different norms that male-female marriage, biological connection, gender complementary parenting, the norm of sex inside of marriage. They spell out these. And then they show with data that this is actually playing itself out, the preliminary data. So that's the one. The second is uh, an amicus brief by Mark Regnerus, Paul Sullins, and Lauren Marks. Uh, and I think this and the testimonies of uh, gays and lesbians themselves will be like the ultrasound of the marriage movement. What ultrasound did for the pro-life movement, good social science and testimonies of uh, gays and lesbians themselves can do for the marriage movement. So the second brief uh, looks at all the social science studies that have been done on same-sex parenting. Uh, so whereas Gene Scher's brief is about how redefining marriage impacts heterosexuals, they want to say, well, what is the truth about homosexual marriage? What's the truth about same-sex parenting? Uh, they point out that the vast majority of the studies that you hear in the news uh, don't actually use good social science methodology. They don't use large or random or representative samples. And when you don't have a representative sample, you can't draw any conclusions about a population as a whole. So they dispense with you know, the vast hundreds of these studies. Then they say there are only eight studies that have been conducted to date that use representative samples. And all eight of them show uh, that children who were raised by same-sex parents uh, have poorer outcomes than children who were raised by their married biological parents. Four of those studies explicitly came to that conclusion, and many of them were maligned in the media. And they walk you through um, the methodology of these. One used uh, Canadian census data. One used CDC uh, data. One was uh, Mark Regnerus's data, the Center for Disease Control. Um, and so it's the National Institutes of Health um, data on family structure. So they use large random representative sampling where they could identify a large segment of the popular number of children who were raised by same-sex couples. 
And they just spell this out. Then they say there are these other four studies um, that the authors said uh, show that there were no differences between same-sex and opposite-sex parenting. But they point out the flaws in those studies because 40 to 60% of the children were actually being raised by heterosexual families. There were coding errors. Um, and they said once you actually uh, code the data correctly and then interpret it correctly, it comes to the same conclusions. I think that over time, um, these studies will be replicated and will be vindicated uh, because we know that marriage matters for children through three primary vehicles, three, pr three primary vectors, biology, gender, and stability. Uh, those are the three things that make marriage so good for children because it connects the children with their biological parents. And we know that biology matters. Uh, so we see that even adoption at childbirth, um, uh, those children don't have as great outcomes as people who are raised by their biological parents. There's something about the biological connection that seems to make a difference. Uh, this is one of the reasons why if you check into a hospital and you're pregnant, 24 hours when you check out, you don't just want a baby, you want your baby. And it matters to you and it matters to your child. Like, so biology matters. They then say that they show that gender matters, that uh, mothers and fathers aren't interchangeable, that men and women interact with children in distinct and complementary ways, and that fathers do certain things in particular for their sons and for their daughters. Uh, and then lastly, stability matters. Um, and we know that same-sex relationships, uh, according to the latest uh, social science, are the least stable of all, not because they're homosexual, but because of the gender pairing. Um, lesbian relationships are the shortest lived of all three types. So you have two women, two men, or a man and a woman. The two-woman relationship is the shortest lived, not because it's a lesbian relationship, because women are, uh, uh, have the highest threshold for emotional satisfaction. They initiate somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of all divorces. And so when you have a double female relationship, it tends to be less stable uh, than a male-female relationship. When was the last time you heard one of your male friends say, oh, I broke up with her, my emotional needs weren't being met? It's not the type of thing guys do. Double female relationship leads to that increased instability in terms of longevity, the double male relationship tends to be the most promiscuous, the most sexually open. Uh, again, it's not because it's gay men, it's because it's men. You put two men in the relationship and it's more likely to be sexually open. Diana, on sure. that, the New York Times had an interesting yes. story a, a year or two ago, just saying that uh, the norm of monogamy or fidelity is gonna have to be redefined or reconceived because of, uh, you know, uh, of uh, gay men's views of, uh, fidelity doesn't quite mean what, uh, yep. what, what, what sort of a Clintonian understanding of fidelity, one might say. Um, I, I do wanna offer one skeptical note, though. Um, when, when Ryan says that social science in this area will be like um, biology in the abortion area, unfortunately, no. I mean. Social science will never be like biology. I mean, you can see the unborn. You cannot. You know, you have to lie to yourself to deny that. People can always lie to themselves about what social science says. And indeed, one should always be. I, I'm deeply skeptical that social science can ever speak meaningfully to us. Yes, there's an awful lot of schlock social science that's that's been relied upon, and, and everyone's quoting all the time. And Mark Rigmaris is doing, you know, important, uh, you know, heroic work. Um, I just doubt that we will ever have. Um, the sort of clarity needed from social science. Or we do, when we do, it's gonna be 100 years down the road and, and so much damage will have been done then. That, uh, I, I, so I, I'm skeptical that we can get well, too much through that. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you, you're never gonna convince someone by arguments when they weren't convinced by arguments in the first place. So if you have an un, you know, uh, uh, if you hold a viewpoint that you didn't reason yourself into, it'll be hard to reason yourself out of it. But I do think these will be helpful for uh, forming our own children, forming our own communities, showing that faith and reason are compatible on this issue. Um, so even if it doesn't have the impact that ultrasound had, and I think really uh, many people's conscience on the left is piqued by an ultrasound image, 
it can at least be useful internally uh, in showing that faith and reason are compatible. The last brief I'll mention, there are three different briefs, and it's filed by uh, two sets of children of gay and lesbian couples. Um, Bobby Lopez and Rivka Edelman, um, uh, uh, Heather Barvik and Katie Faust, and then Dawn, I forget Dawn's last name and I forget her co, Dawn, say it again? Stefanowitz and then her co-author who I can't remember. Um, but anyway, you can find there are three different sets of briefs. And these are children who were raised by either two gay parents or two lesbian parents, love their parents. They don't speak negatively about their parents, but they say, I wish I would have had a mom or I wish I would have had a dad. Uh, and they explain how redefining marriage will um, put more children in that situation. And then even worse, it'll tell those children that the problem is with them, not with their family structure. If you were a child who was a child of divorce, a child of adoption, a child of single parenting, the general culture said, yeah, you're justified in feeling that somehow an injustice was leveled upon you or that somehow your family situation isn't perfect. Um, no one told the child of divorced parents to just suck it up. You're just like everyone else. What are you complaining about? Um, but that's the cultural message uh, that these people were saying is going to be sent towards children of gay or lesbians couples, that they're no different from any other child, and that if they experience their situation as being different, the problem is with them, not with objective reality. Uh, and they, they, they spell this out. Uh, they tell beautiful testimonies. Bobby Lopez was the first run uh, to write a piece like this. He wrote it three years ago now for public discourse. It was titled, Growing Up With Two Moms, The Untold Child Story. And he said that when he read the Mark Regnera study, he finally saw his life uh, recognized by social science. He said this was the first time that a social scientist had uncovered the reality of his life growing up with two moms. And it's what moved him to speak about this. He's a bisexual man himself. Uh, it's, he's not coming out of this out of some anti-gay animus. He just thinks family structure matters. There's another essay titled, I'm Gay and I'm Against Gay Marriage, written by Doug Mainwaring. Uh, he was married. He had some children. He came out of the closet as gay. He formed a gay relationship. He realized that his kids still needed a mom and a dad, and that two dads, two moms weren't the same thing. I think these testimonies uh, can be very powerful. And you know, this gets back to your original question was, you know, what about these voices? I don't know if they're the best arguments to make. I would say that those three sets of arguments are particularly good. I'll also mention I filed an amicus brief, but um, you're probably familiar with the basic argument uh, since I've been making it for like three years now, and it hasn't gone anywhere. But um, there are a number of really good briefs. I think the legal arguments made before the court were um, the best our side has ever made. And I think the question in the back is probably right that Justice Kennedy is not likely to be swayed by them. Please join me in thanking our speakers tonight.